Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. My name is Mr. Craig I'm one of the hosts of Splatter Chatter. Yes, he is, and I am Miss Melmoy, your other host. That's right, she sure is. And tonight is episode 95, in which we will be donning our owl masks and gnashing our metal teeth and glam rocking out to Brian De Palma's 1974 cult classic, Phantom of the Paradise, starring William Finley, Paul Williams, and Jessica Harper. It's going to be pretty wild because <laughs> it's a gonzo movie. Yeah. And uh, we're doing it as sort of like a weird love type of thing mm-hmm. for um, the month of love and Valentine's Day, et cetera, et cetera. Um, before we talk about all of that craziness, though, let's do a horror headlines read, watch, and listen check in because I think we both have a lot to catch up on. We went on a rampage. Um, so we, so first of all, scream scream because that yeah. happened we right after we did our last episode exactly um scream scream five scream five as it were um both of us i would say pretty happy with it yeah i had i had tons of fun as soon as in the beginning when he was like what's your favorite scary movie and she was like the babadook i was like okay <laughs> <laughs> okay all right yeah um fun time it was mm-hmm. it was brutal it was funny mm-hmm. uh topical mm-hmm. very pleased with it yeah and we're getting another one yeah yeah and also the news that scream six um not only is greenlit but like they're gonna start filming it this summer yeah so i had a feeling that they were pretty um they like had something ready to go if they if this Went yeah. the way they were hoping, which it apparently like made bank. It made a lot of money. Um, I haven't really looked at a lot of like non-horror reviews because non-horror review, like non-horror people right. writing reviews for horror movies don't matter. But everybody <laughs> in the community seems to really like it. Yeah, well, first of all, after it came out, everyone had very chaotic rankings yo it I was like fear street all over again i did not know so many people like really like scream 3 <laughs> some people really like scream 3 um but yeah i was seeing like a lot of people were putting it as like one of their top like in the top tier of the sequels um which is so where do you fun. put it where's your so, rank obviously one yeah two okay and then i have to like Either four or this like comes next. Like I'm inclined to, I don't know. Now I need to just rewatch them all again. Right. But because I think both four and this have like merits that I really enjoy, but I liked the cast of this and like the interactions and just the overall, like that kind of writing in it more, even if I like appreciated, cause I really liked the whole idea of the remake in four. Yeah. And then obviously three was last. Yeah, I think that's. I love when nobody brings up Roman like ever. <laughs> like they're listed when they list the killers, they just never mention. <laughs> never, he's never mentioned. There, there is. Someone said, and I don't really remember. Someone said there is something in the new one that 
is a reference to Roman, but I don't think I caught it. I definitely didn't catch it, but yeah. I'll but, have to watch again. But there were a lot. There were so many like little nods to so many. Mm-hmm. We finally got, you know, Tatum in an urn. So somebody yeah. remembers her. Yeah, <laughs> which is one of our biggest like jokes yeah. we always like to pull up. Like, hey, remember yeah. Him? <laughs> when uh yeah well it's just the best when sydney refers to dewey as their like adoptive big brother or whatever and i'm like yeah remember when he had an actual sister <laughs> and then she was murdered <laughs> brutally um but yeah so obviously did that saw that um had a ton of fun it was very much like being back in the back in the the, it, the, the I, I think i mentioned this um when we did the screen podcast that just i had never like been into Scream when a Scream movie was coming out. So it was fun right. getting to experience it with everybody else who was like, you know, doing their bits about like me at the box office when they ask what movie I'm going to see. Yeah. And everyone's in like full ghost face costume. Full ghost face. Um, I saw the thing, I was, it was like, um, theaters totally should have done the um, uh, medium pepsi and a small popcorn no butter that um jada pinkett orders <laughs> get the, like, get the scream the scream special yeah i was like oh that why didn't they um but. yeah but so did that um these are not going to be in order these are just what's top of mind to me i started watching that documentary on folk horror I'm oh sure. yeah it's very long <laughs> it's very long and its title is very i never remember yeah it. it's like dancing in the wood where dark woods and bewitching something bewitching and yeah days and <laughs> your <laughs> i think everyone knows what we're talking about yeah it's good it's on the home page if you look in shutter <laughs> yeah. um but no that's very good because i like how they obviously open with the big three and then they go into like everything else that sort of leads up to it or other folk horrors that like really don't get to be in conversation that much. Um, yeah. Yeah, apparently it goes through quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's been pretty cool to see like Shudder, when they added that, they added an entire folk collection. Mm-hmm. So like, I think like every movie that gets covered in that documentary is now available on Shudder. That's pretty cool. And so there's just like tons. Because there's a few in there where I was like, oh, I want to watch that. Yeah. Like Um, the, you know how, you know, when you get on Shutter, they've got like the three channels that's always mm -hmm. playing something random. Well, the one channel now is folk horror. And so you can catch, you know, whatever's on. Whatever's on. Yeah. Um, I, we were killing, now this is going to come up again in our main discussion. I had to kill time before the Super Bowl. Oh, oh right. <laughs> and I watched a few things. One we'll get into. Another one, though, that I watched and was pleasantly surprised by was um, The Deep House. Hey, I just watched that, too. It's Isn't it, like, surprisingly good? It was surprisingly good. Yeah, we were watching it because we were like, okay, we got an hour until the game, so we just threw that on. And then yeah. we're, like, getting through it, and we're like, I think we have to finish this before like, we turn the game on. <laughs> I was like, you know, when I saw like the premise or whatever, I was like, this, oh, this is stupid. Yeah. yeah. And then I was like, I'm Which is why we put it on because we're like, this sounds fucking dumb. And we put it on and, you know, it opens in a found footage format. So you think it's going right. to be that. Um, but no, it was like really solid. It was solid. It was fairly effective. Yeah. 
Well, and like, cause you know, so the premise uh, is a couple who's like a YouTubing couple trying to be there. Like, it's like, I don't think they have like a super big following and their shtick is like, they're urban explorers. Like they videotape like abandoned places and they hear about like a completely submerged but really well-preserved house in a reservoir, I think. So they go down and that's the premise friends. Um, and they spend probably like a good hour of the movie in scuba suits, mm-hmm. which, you know, when it got to that point, we were like, okay, well, at some point they have to find the room that's got the air pocket because they can't be in the, in the suits the whole time, but they are. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Or like there would be some weird sort of like, oh my God, the water doesn't come into what, you know, yeah. but no, it's like, it's truly like entirely underwater. Yeah. And it's good. And it's like, wow, I didn't know a slow chase name could be so creepy. <laughs> oh man, that was so, I was really freaking out. <laughs> um, but that is on Hulu and Paramount Plus, I think. <clears throat> For those who want to check that out. Um, something else I watched, which is, I think it was on Hulu as well, was um, Sea Fever. Oh yeah, that not that good? Wasn't that mm-hmm. good? Mm-hmm. So that was very good. I heard it was very like pandemic prescient. Yeah. Because it was filmed and produced, I think, right before the pandemic, but came out in April of 2020. Yeah. Um, and that was very good. It was also very solid. Yeah, th- I really like that movie. I put that in my top 20 for 2020. Oh, okay. Um, I quite like that movie. Yeah. Um, I like aquatic horror. Yeah. yeah, I guess that was the theme of these two movies. It wasn't on purpose, but they were both aquatic <laughs> horror. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because, as many of you may have heard, I don't go into water. <laughs> and um, th- this is why. I was going to say, definitely the deep house. Probably. Yeah, I was like, excuse me, I'm not going in the lake where there's a demon house at the bottom. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Hard pass. <laughs> this is exactly why I don't go in any lake, because there's always a demon house at the bottom. Just assume there's always a demon That's my house. baseline assumption. <laughs> and now it's been confirmed. Yeah, but um, that's what I've been up to. It's... Uh, and I wanted to get, they didn't have it. I think it's called The Devil House, um, which came out at the end of January. It's a book by, I forget his name, but he did Universal Harvest. Um, and it seemed like it had a pretty good premise, but. And that book does sound good. Yeah. So eventually, hopefully by the next time we record, I'll, I'll have that as a little update. Yeah. Yeah. But what about you? Um... Yeah, I've been watching this and that. Um, th- watched The Deep House. Um, uh, <clears throat> watched some other stuff on Shudder. Um, one of their originals, The Last Thing Mary Saw. People, I've been seeing people talk about that. Yeah, it was, um, it reminded me like, I don't know, maybe like a cross between The Witch and I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Like interesting, it was going for that Puritan, like Puritan religion. Shirley Jackson. <laughs> yeah, kind of feel, but it, it's it's very atmospheric, kind of slow, okay. moody. Um, not bad though. Um, I watched another movie called Thirty Miles from Nowhere. Um, okay. Just like a fun turn your brain off 
um, mm -hmm. like a bunch of friends at a cabin in the woods sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, nothing crazy. I did watch, um, you know, like Shutter just put a bunch of like, uh, like love Valentine's-y type mm -hmm. horror up. Yeah. I watched Valentine and Cherry Falls. <laughs> um, which were fun to revisit. I had not seen either of them in years. Um, so that was cool. Shudder is always killing it. I don't know if you saw, but the collection that they're focusing on next month is going to be um, new French extremity films. Interesting. So they're, they're going hard. They're putting up like Martyrs and Inside. I was just talking about that with somebody because we got on the topic of what the hell is going on in Italy in the 1970s. <laughs> um, and then we started talking about Martyrs because, of course, you know, that's like the natural progression. Of <laughs> <laughs> you will eventually land on Martyrs. <laughs> um, that's fun. There was one that came out. It just came out last week. I haven't watched it, but my friend did and gave me like the entire synopsis. So I basically watched it because she's like, <laughs> I need to tell you what happens in this movie. About um, but it's on Netflix. It released on Netflix. So it's called The Privilege or Das Privilege for oh. those of you who speak German. I feel like I've seen maybe some stuff on Twitter about this. Yes. Um, my understanding of it is that it is like, I know all the plots and the twists and turns, so I won't say what they are, but um, it's doing a lot of different things. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And one of the kids from Dark is in it, so that's always fun. Oh, okay. I gotta finish Dark. Yeah. Trippy show. Speaking of shows, I've also been watching a lot of uh, horror television. Um, mm -hmm. The new season of Servant has started, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is just as like weird and awesome as I want it to be. Um, I also watched the mini series reboot redo of Dexter. Oh um, yeah, like the return slash reboot yeah, sequel. Dexter New Blood to basically like make up for the terrible ending of the original series. Um, I would say that they did. It's a much more satisfying ending. Good, good. I've also been watching this Netflix show called Archive 81. I've been meaning to watch that. My sister, of course, like blew through it and she didn't spoil it, but like emotionally she was like, oh, wow. And then she was like, ah, oh, I called it. Or like, you know, so I was getting the different emotional points. The emotional play without but, knowing what it corresponds to. Yeah. I don't yeah. even need to watch that. It's fun. It's, I didn't know until I started watching it. It's apparently based off of a podcast. It sounds like something that would be based off a podcast. Yeah. Archive 81. Yeah. But I'm I'm liking it. I haven't finished it yet. Um, and then of course the other thing that I totally like fell in love with and got obsessed with and binged through, as so many of us did within the last month, Yellow Jackets. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! I have to say, when I guess this is spoilers, but it's going to be out of context. When Misty's only um, idea of how to prevent the drug taking is to take. It's just off the cocaine herself. <laughs> One of the best moments of the season. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> she was like, no. So good. Um, but yes, that show bonkers. Definitely one episode at a time and have something nice to watch after it. Yeah, it's intense. 
um, and huge amounts of cliffhangers. I was really shocked. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I watched. Oh, you tell me this first. Go. Okay. Did you know um, Eduardo Sanchez is involved with Yellow Jackets, one of the Blair Witch Project directors? That's so wild. Yeah. That's crazy. You know what? That makes sense, though. I could see, like, yeah, I think he's. A, I think he's a producer. He might be writing as well. I'm yeah, I can sure. see the vibes crossing over because I know I looked up like the whole like you know what the sort of catalyst was for this. The, the woman, because I think it was created like it was written by a woman and her husband. They were like, like created the concept, or she created yeah. the concept, and her husband's a producer. I can't remember quite exactly what it is, but she basically like got the idea after they announced like an all-female cast of a adaptation of Lord of the Flies and people, oh, yeah. yeah. And people were saying like, Oh, like, I don't think like girls would do that. Like whatever. And she was like, you don't know teenage girls. Yeah. Oh, yeah that's right. She was like, they 100% would. So yeah. So she like basically took what happened to that um, Venezuelan soccer team. Right. Um, yeah. And you know, applied it here and uh, went nuts with it. But um yeah. yeah, it's really good. It's really good. Supposedly there is a five season plan that's been sketched out. So it's, you know, that's that's comforting to know that like, okay, they've got an endpoint, they've mm-hmm. got like major story beats, like yeah. hopefully we'll get to tell the whole thing. So. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. I thought, oh my God, like, again, like, I, can't, I, I don't know, spoilers. I just, what's, I forget the husband's name, Jeff. Is that his name? Yeah, Jack. I fucking love that guy. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Somebody made a pin that just says, uh, there's no book club. Oh my God. (laughs) One of the best moments. Um, But yes, I I also got into Yellow Jackets. Um, I was going to tell you though, I finally watched The Vigil, which was your big one from last year. What did you think? I liked it a lot. I will say Bloomhouse films all have a very similar music aesthetic that they like to use (laughs) um but no I liked it a lot that was very creepy yeah that one creeped me out yeah I quite like the visual I almost watched your big recommendation for me which was in the earth Mm -hmm. I almost watched that the other I think actually I was between that and the deep house you know what I can't even follow you because the deep house was such delight yeah and I was just kind of like I don't know if I'm like up to like intellectually engage you know within the earth so I threw on the deep house because I thought it was going to be more like goofy and then it was just like what is this um yeah, so that's that's I think that's all the stuff I've been up to. I think that's all I've got too. So let's turn our attention then to uh Phantom of the Paradise, mm-hmm. the subject of this episode. Um, but before we get carried away, let's take a listen to the trailer. Twentieth Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise. A gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter and beyond. The story of a sound, the man 
who created it, the girl who sang it, the monster who stole it, and the phantom who haunts the paradise, the ultimate rock palace. Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries, dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody, that you weren't working just to survive. Beef. Snow! Man, you better get yourself a castrato for this. Paul Williams as Swan. And the angels that I want you to stop terrorizing the paradise and rewrite your cantata. And the Phantom. Phantom of the Paradise. There really is the Phantom, Phantom. Alrighty, so we're going to begin with our opening question, which is, when did you first see this film and what were your first impressions? So I have kind of a funny story about this movie. Yeah. Um, I first became aware of it, I want to say it was probably like around like 2006, like I was in middle school. And it was because it was part of a documentary on Phantom of the Opera, where they were like going through different Phantom of the Opera adaptations. Yeah. And this one popped up and I was like, you know because my understanding at that point I'm like what 12 or 13 or however old maybe I'm like 14 I don't know but you know my my whole world of fan of the opera is the book and the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical so you know it's a very funny thing so that's when I first kind of like really was like what is this but when I fast forward to like 2013-2014 when I was working in Disney Mm. at the haunted mansion this strange fucking child i don't know maybe listen to the podcast now <laughs> comes up to me she's like probably 10 years old i'm like working outside i'm like the greeter or whatever and she comes up to me like to ask me like questions and stuff and then she asks me if i know about the phantom of the paradise and i was like i don't know what like it was out of nowhere this kid Whoa. is just like my she was like i guess obsessed with this movie and she was like, yeah, like the fan of the paradise. Like, do you know about it? Like, you know, the character. And I was like, I not, you know, and I'm doing the Disney thing to be like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Right. So I checked, you know, after that, I'm like, I have to understand what's happening. Um, it, I don't think it's a movie a 10-year-old should watch. No, no, it is not. <laughs> um, so that was like sort of a strange multi-year, like slow um. <laughs> you know sip by sip with this with this movie that's amazing yeah because it was so funny because yeah no i she was she i don't even know where her parents were somewhere because i remember they eventually came to collect her but she was like talking about going on the haunted mansion and you know in the way that 10 year olds like you know things cross over in their brain so i think she was trying to ask me like if that character would be in the haunted mansion mm. um and i was like no <laughs> no but you know whatever <laughs> i had some listen i've had some 
people ask me some weird shit and I had some weird shit happen at that. Did I ever tell you about the weirdest thing I had I found while walking through the ride at in at the night? Because you have to pick up like lost and found shit. Sure. I found what I can only describe as somebody's curse object. (laughs) (laughs) Did you touch it? Yeah, I had because I was like, what the fuck is that? I couldn't tell if it was part of the ride or not. And it clearly wasn't. Um, I don't know what happened to it after I, I was like gave it to the coordinator. I was like, you do something with this. But anyway, that was well, my good. first. You, you didn't end up cursed. <laughs> yeah, as far as we know. But um, yeah, so that was my first. Amazing. My, yeah. So. God, we need to find that little girl and have her come on as a guest. I know. <laughs> um, I feel like I... Well, I don't have that journey, but I feel like I have a similar journey of discovery. <laughs> we all have our own journeys. Right. In that I wasn't really aware of this movie probably until I was around 12, 13, 14 mm. or something. Um, and again, because not because of my horror interest, but because of my Phantom of the Opera mm. musical interest. Yeah. And at some point, you know, when you know that obsession was really strong like looking into other adaptations and I think at some point I thought like when I started looking into this movie I thought it was going to be something like the Disney Channel original movie Phantom of the Megaplex. Oh my god do you remember Phantom of the Megaplex? We should have done Phantom of the Megaplex. (laughs) (laughs) Look for that in the future. Yeah um because like I, I just kind of knew the log line, right? It was yeah. like, oh, it takes place at a theater and there's music. And and like, cool, spooky composer. Right. Um, no, not at all. <laughs> but I didn't actually see the movie, I think, until college, probably. Um, yeah, catching it at some point. And I remember being very like, what the fuck is this (laughs) um and there were parts of it that really annoyed me on that initial viewing and there were other parts where I was just like this is amazing yeah um and so and then re-watching it again for this episode um was only the second time I've seen it so it's been it's been wild (laughs) yeah so one thing I will say, and I'll talk about this more, is that I did an accidental double feature. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Um, which we'll go to that. when we go into our analysis. But I think it's worth watching both of these if you have that much brain time to waste. Um, which is The Apple, which came out in 1980, I think. Um, which is also a rock musical about the sort of decadence and horrors of the music industry (laughs) that's a million times worse Mm. and insane like (laughs) look just look at the wikipedia of the the this movie and like look at the production section it's nuts but anyway Mm. we'll go into that a little bit in the analysis but just if you're looking for a weird sort of double feature (laughs) and that that's that's the one a good segue then I think to talk about to give some background information about this movie and particularly the music industry uh, mm-hmm. that's being commented upon in this film and you did some 
um, good research about that. So do you want to yeah. tell us a bit? Sure. So in the 1950s and 60s, um, the like music industry, specifically like radio and like record production decentralized, um, mm-hmm. which meant that you got all these like indie record labels popping up that like eventually become, I think, I think it's like now known as like the big six, but I'm not sure. Cause I feel like every industry has its like, you know, like publishing as the big five. So right. I could be getting the number wrong, but there are like six or so like central music producers today who like, you know, own every other. Smaller you know, like, yeah. yeah. So that starts like in the sixties is when that sort of boom happens. Cause okay. the, you know, so like before that you had like bandstand acts, like, in the beginning, like we had the Juicy Fruits and who like, I want a movie about them. That was great. Yeah, where's their spin-off? <laughs> the opening. Um, but so you, you know, like the bandstand controls, you know, music and your access to music because it's on television at a certain time of day. And obviously at this point in time, if you miss it, you know, tough shit. Like, you know, right. it's live TV. Um, like but, literally things like American Bandstand. Yeah. And, like, like, yeah you like rush home to catch it at four o'clock or else you're screwed yeah um but basically with the technology technological advancements that are starting to happen and like the mass production of like records and things that come after that you know people can now like bring music into their homes way easier and um you have at the same time like elvis makes rock and roll very popular for white mainstream people mm. and the beatles and this is all becoming a thing um, and basically, it becomes impossible for. Um, I apologize if you can hear the massive sirens outside. Emergency! Emergency! <laughs> um, it becomes impossible for any artist to really like be a successful musician without the backing of a record company. Um, and record labels knew this. So they would have like these horrible like contracts where a lot of people were basically signing away the rights to like any creative thing they made like in perpetuity um, and stuff like that. And like, they still like are really like the record, the record companies are still not to like be like cliche, but they're still really shitty. Um, There's a, there's several good documentaries about how shitty they are. You know, like artists, oh, like contemporary artists that yeah, we know that are struggling with this same issue. Yeah, like the chicks, the birds, thirty seconds to Mars actually have a whole documentary about it. Wow. Um, Taylor Swift, Paul McCartney, Megan Thee Stallion, Johnny Cash, and like a, basically everyone has had some sort of fight or litigation with their um, record label. Um, but you know, basically only existing artists had negotiating power Mm. and like you know one thing I think this film touches on is the idea of selling out so like I said earlier like to be you know to have any hope of success you had to have a record deal um but to have a record deal that means they basically own everything you create you know they can take it and do whatever they want with it they can change the vibe the, the the genre what have you in like the most extreme cases, I, you know, obviously this movie is extreme. Right. Um, but that's like the, all the backdrop to this is, you know, like the, and, you know, I think going back to the Apple, I think there's, there's definitely something for like music in this film and in general for being like sort of symbolic of identity. So like, you know, like you have, you know, when we get into it, um, 
Winslow like very much has his identity wrapped up in being the composer and that's the kind of music he creates mm -hmm. and that really informs his worldview and his philosophy and then you have um like if you watch the apple you've got like the Adam and Eve characters are like the music's terrible but they're going for a sort of hippie singer-songwriter thing which represents like peace and anti-capitalism like there's just this very okay. like real sort of music as cultural identity sure that i which think is happening so, which was so huge and important mm -hmm. in like late 60s and 70s culture you mm -hmm. know like especially like post woodstock you know mm -hmm. which this is right around the time that sort of you know this comes out what in 1974 74 yeah so it's a couple of years after woodstock which was like the last big music festival essentially right. and where it was like you know, non-corp, like music yeah. people, you know. It wasn't like Firefly and, and right. yeah. Bonnaroo and stuff. Yeah, it was like music as a message. Yeah. Yeah, they were like very like decentralized. They, you know, may or may not have had permits and that sort of thing. Um, so it's an interesting sort of like, you know, if, you know, you could take this also, like, you know, it's obviously a microcosm, like, look how shitty the music industry is, but it's also, like, the larger, just, like, the music industry being shitty represents, like, the larger sort of scope of, like, American business and mm -hmm. greed and politics being shitty, and this is just, like, one facet of that. Right. Like, once again, capitalism ruins the party. Yeah. Interesting, very interesting. And I think puts this film into um, a particular uh, context that yeah. <laughs> is good to have. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, so so Phantom of the Paradise, um, knowing all of this uh, is written by um, one of the genre's uh, most legendary um writers and directors uh brian de palma it's like i feel like after the fact i learned that it was him and i was like oh <laughs> yeah i remember watching it for the first time and like seeing his name come up in the credits and being like wait a minute what yeah <laughs> yeah what a weird little passion project of yours i guess right well yeah so he had originally come up with the idea, I guess, at some point in the late 60s mm -hmm. um, and didn't get around to making it, you know, for a couple of years. So, I, you know, when you're talking about all of this music background stuff, it just it feels like he was maybe tuned into a lot of that mm -hmm. potentially um, to give him the idea uh, but De Palma, of course, you know, he's one of the leading figures of the new Hollywood generation of filmmakers. Um, he had made seven movies before Phantom of the Paradise. This was his eighth. It was the second in this like string of movies. He made three small studio um, independently released movies because he had gotten really burnt out when he made um, his first huge Hollywood film, which was Get to Know Your Rabbit, that starred Orson Welles and Tommy Smothers. Um, and particularly, he talked about working with Smothers as being like extra exhausting. Smothering? Yeah, smothering! <laughs> and so he wanted to scale back, so he made Sisters, he made this movie, 
And then um, after this film, he would go on to direct Obsession. And then he would sort of move back into um, the mainstream uh, with uh, his very um, big budget, successful um, adaptation of Carrie, uh, the first Stephen King adaptation to film uh, in 1976, which of course was a huge box office and critical success. So that's kind of like the space that he was in at this point in his career. Um, and just a couple of notes, you know, about the writing and the making of the film. In the original draft, he, the character of Swan was actually named Spectre. He looks like him too. <laughs> yeah, as a direct reference to um, famed uh, record producer and murderer, murder victim, murder, whatever, Phil Spector. Murderer and murder victim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but that was changed. I could not find if it was changed of his own volition or if it was changed later in the process at like, you know, Becker or studio behest. But it is interesting to think about that that's who De Palma was thinking of when crafting the character. Um, yeah. The novelization of the film um, was penned by an author named uh, Jan Rosting. Um, and I think it was based off of an early draft of the screenplay because apparently the novelization um, does not include the supernatural elements of the film, which are relatively central. Yeah, so I'm not sure what um, Rusting was working off of, but I do find that interesting. Um, I don't exactly know how long filming took. I couldn't find anything about that. Uh, we do know a couple of locations that were used, like uh, the City Center Concert Hall in New York was used for the exteriors of the Paradise uh, Theater in the film. Um, and the Majestic Theater in Dallas was used for the interior shots of the Paradise. The Electronic Room, where Winslow composes, you know, the rest of his masterpiece, um, is a real recording studio at Record Plant in New York. Though all those knobs on the walls are actually a um, oversized custom-built synthesizer that's nicknamed Tonto. Um, which now resides at the National Music Center in Alberta, Canada. Yep. And uh, you can still use it to this day. It still works. So if you want to go synthesize some things, <laughs> shuffle on up there. Um, the, so originally, De Palma had brought in um, a famous doo-wop group, Shanana, to play the Juicy Fruits but they were evidently very difficult to work with. And so he dismissed them like early-ish on in filming. Well, I was going to say they're only in one scene, but they're not because they come back as different. <laughs> um, so I guess that could be annoying. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I guess, you know, they were pretty big in the mid seventies. So maybe they were, were divas. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, of course, speaking of music and such, obviously that's very central to this movie. Uh, the score and the soundtrack were composed by Paul Williams, who plays Swan um, and provided uh, the singing voice for the, um, the Phantom character. 
I think you can find the soundtrack on Spotify. I did not double check on that. I know there's there are physical releases out there, and I think mm-hmm. there's 14 tracks on it or so. And another interesting to note about this film, this movie was entirely independently financed. There was no studio backing of any kind. Um, and when it was finished, producer Edward R. Pressman then took it around to the studios for a bidding war and they ended up selling to 20th Century Fox for distribution at around $2 million. Oh. Yeah. So um, do we want to do a quick walkthrough? Sure. Of what goes on in this movie? What the fuck happens in this movie? <laughs> yeah. What uh, What's the deal with Phantom of the Paradise? Like what? Uh, so what's the gross out of your face? <laughs> Show us the gross out of your face so I can get out of here. And uh, there is definitely a gross side of his face mm-hmm. in this movie. Yeah. So what's so what so what's the deal? What do we like? How do we start this journey? So we start this journey with a um, great introduction by Ron Sterling. Yeah. Uncredited. Uncredited. Um, <laughs> but you will recognize him immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, which probably really does a lot to set the tone (laughs) for what this is uh, to have him. For those who don't know, he's the, um, basically the MC for the original Twilight Zone. Um, So there you go. Um, But he gives us like a little rundown of like everything that's going to be happening, um, you know, and dives into it. Um, And basically we open with um, this bandstand type band the juicy fruits singing their song <clears throat> um goodbye edward or goodbye eddie goodbye um which is a weird song about a, a guy who kills himself yeah um, and then they're kind of like it's a bummer but on the other hand <laughs> yeah no it's it's actually i think it's a funny little song because it's like that that bandstand 1950s style but it's such a dark like i think it, like it's purpose it's a very purposeful juxtaposition for this like wholesome 1950s style music that in the content is about this guy who like kills himself yes um so there's that. So anyway, they're like um, performing. <laughs> I think they're like owned by Swan. Like he kind of already has them as a as a group, and they're like performing because yeah. he Swan is this mysterious record producer who's like you know like got you know 100 hit count. Like he's really good at what he does. Um, he's kind he of runs the, he runs the death label. Yes, the death label, and uh, he's kind of a little bit reclusive. Like he doesn't let people take his picture um and that sort of thing but um yeah so this is like his new project it's the juicy fruits and they seem pretty cool um and then after like the juicy fruits finish the rehearsal or their set or whatever it is they're doing this dude comes out named winslow who unclear like i i don't know if he was auditioning or he was just hanging around and decided to start playing on the piano yeah i got the sense like on this viewing that like he was maybe some sort of like low ranking like PA or something mm-hmm. like involved at the record company because like they're the juicy fruits are being like filmed right yeah them. it's some sort of like production that's going on yeah 
so he comes out and he's just like fucking around on the piano after they're like i guess like resetting or something or being done for the day and he sings a song and swan who's like up in the, the shadows hears it and is like oh that's that's it that's <laughs> yeah i don't know what it is but he's got it so um he basically uh sends his like um like hired muscle dude who i actually like really can't like i i like this guy philbin Philbin. i think he's great (laughs) um so he sends him to to see winslow and basically get the sheet music from him uh with the promise that like oh yeah like he wants to he heard you he wants to produce it you know it's gonna be great um so he takes the music um but then a month passes and Winslow doesn't hear from Swan. So what does he do? No. So he's like, you know, Winslow, who is kind of this, like, you know, we get the sense he's a little bit meek. He's a little naive. Maybe, you know, even for him a month, he's like, oh, well, I I should probably get some answers. Mm -hmm. He goes to uh, Swan's mansion, which also doubles as like a recording space i think his office (laughs) yeah and his like place of business it's all in one sort of situation um just to see what the deal is and he's kicked out by security because he's already on this like do not admit list or i can't remember how it's phrased but it's like yeah it was like must never be seen or must never be seen yeah (laughs) Yeah. And then so he decides to sneak in. And when he sneaks in, he sees all these women like milling about in like the grand foyer and like going up this staircase. And, you know, it's discovered that they're here for an audition. Um, And when he hears, you know, they're all singing and practicing and warming up um, their vocal cords and such. And he hears um, one uh, woman in particular uh, who goes, a woman who goes by the name Phoenix is singing his song uh, that he wrote. And he's like, Hey, that's my music. And she's like, Whoa, cool. Um, And again, he tries to sort of like get in to see Swan, um, especially because uh, he's now realizing that Swan is auditioning people with his pieces, um, but he is rejected. Uh, Phoenix also um, is turned away from the auditions because she refuses to basically um, do the casting couch Mm -hmm. situation with Philbin and uh, it's implied also Swan Um, and then (laughs) there's this very sort of like some like it hot situation where (laughs) in order to like get in to see Swan Winslow dresses up as a woman um, and then he's in this like very 70s like boudoir sex chamber sex <laughs> chamber sort of mirrors space. on the ceiling kind of deal yeah there's mirrors on the ceiling there's silk sheets and like a big round bed that takes up most of the room and there's all of these like nubile young women who are in there that have like I don't know, like made it to this like final round of the audition. And like a lot of them have like auditioned for Swan before and they're talking about, oh, you'll see what happens. And they, it's like all very like erotic and goofy and um, implied that like 
I don't know, sexual things are going to go down more than any sort of like business <laughs> is going to go down. Um, and then Swan sort of finally enters the room. And this is when we actually see him for the first time. Um, and all the women fawn over him and Winzo's like, hey, look, it's me. <laughs> I'm the composer and you're using my music. And um, Swan has him thrown out. And um, he also, I guess, has like, you know, powerful connections with the police because two police officers are summoned who, you know, normally they would just escort him away from the property, right? But no, what they do instead is they plant drugs on him for which Winslow is then arrested and given a life sentence in Sing Sing prison. It's really, it really escalates. It really, I, and this is all in the span of like two minutes, maybe. Um, yeah, so Winslow is carted away to Sing Sing prison and we sort of like smash cut to the infirmary there where this new experimental treatment that is funded by the Swan Foundation is going underway. And the experiment involves uh, extracting all of the teeth of an inmate and replacing them with metal ones. And Winslow sort of protests that he has not volunteered for this experiment and you know professes his innocence and you know nobody cares and um forcibly has his teeth removed and given uh <laughs> big silver metal <laughs> teeth instead <laughs> and um Winslow's actually uh in prison for quite a while um how long is he there Miss Mel um he spends the next six months yeah. with his metal teeth um just kind of doing his thing and he um hears like he's working kind of like on a is it they're like on the like sort of like working line in the jail like that you yeah. see in cliche in movies where they're like right. stamping license, license plates and that sort of thing right um and there's like he hears um, while doing this, the Juicy Fruits um, are like coming out with um, an album from Swan, and right. he kind of has like a triggering like sort of freakout. <laughs> like I don't know if he hadn't thought about Swan or anything that had happened for the past six months, but he hears Swan and he just like loses it, um, and he kind of has like a big breakdown, and he um, breaks out of prison um, by sneaking out through like the delivery system. And he heads to Death Records. Um, I love how he's like flailing run. Yeah, oh my God. He's like not even like full, like sort of Almas Phantom yet. And he's got just, he's like completely deranged and he runs to Death Records. And um, he goes into the like room where they're like actually pressing the records and he's so mad and he's trying to like basically like break the records or stop the process. Um, and like during an, during doing this, and I think there's like an altercation with a guard who comes in. He his like body basically falls into the record press, right? And um, it slowly closes in on him, and it presses the right side of his face, which is immediately like horrifically burned. 
And I guess like it gets his neck too, because like his vocal cords are like destroyed. Um, and he like just runs out of the, the, the record building, like, you know, all bloody and burned and, you know, like very pathetic. Um, apparently that scene was very dangerous to film. Yes. Um, <laughs> they like were like, hey, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, he was real nervous about it and then almost was not fine. Yeah, <laughs> but he turned out to be fine. Um, so um, he heads now, I guess, to the paradise itself. He like stumbles his way over there. Um, yeah. And he gets into the, the sort of costume department and um, picks out the most ridiculous shit. <laughs> right? Like he picks out this long, like silky, a little bit sparkly at times cape, and then a weird, <laughs> like silver metallic futuristic looking owl mask, which is uh, you know what he wears in the the poster, uh, and is kind of the um, you know the like signature look, I guess, of this this movie. Um, but he also like looks like he's got like like the Batman eye black on underneath that Batman just always magically has. <laughs> yeah. So what is is your take? Is that part of the mask, or is that like did he go to the makeup room? Or? Also, like I think it's supposed to be part of the mask because later when he takes the mask off, he doesn't have like he doesn't have okay. have it. So I think it's supposed to be part of the mask, but it's very clearly like black eye makeup around right. the eyes to like make the eyes pop, kind of. Yeah. Um. So, you know, it's, it's like Batman. It's like when Batman puts weird black around his eyes. Yeah. Um, in, in between the eye holes. But so he does this. Um, and he kind of just fucks around for a while. Like in the, the theater, he, um, like the Juicy Fruits have now become the Beach Bums and they're doing sort of like, <laughs> like Beach Boys music. Um, right. But, oh yeah, and we should say that like when we first meet them, the juicy fruits are sort of like um, very like like do seasons yeah. Frankie Avalon, you know, kind of thing. And now they're <laughs> now they're doing this. Yeah. Um, so while they're doing their set where they're now dressed as like surfer dudes, he like plants a car bomb in the fake car <laughs> on set, <laughs> and it, that explodes. Um, <laughs> And um, that kind of gets Swan's attention. So what happens after this? Yeah, that definitely gets Swan's attention. Um, and, uh, oh, and, and I guess we should say, and Winslow's particularly pissed because the Beach Bums, formerly the Juicy Fruits, they're playing a version of Winslow's song. Yeah, a beach, a surf rock version of yeah. a of his cantata as he keeps telling his us cantata, his 200 page cantata yeah right so, yeah and we should also say winslow is writing this 200 page cantata about the um the story of faust yeah you know which he intends to be very serious and operatic and dramatic and you know now he's seeing it bastardized you know by like corporate music production and and etc cetera, etc cetera. so he's pissed but anyway so he attempts to uh, blow up the beach bumps. <laughs> and um, Swan takes notice and um, they end up having a confrontation like in the in the studio, I guess, like 
I'm not sure where they are. I can't really tell. They're like behind the, they're somewhere backstage. Yeah. There's like in some sort of production space. Right. And um, Swan instantly knows that this owl-masked, cloaked figure is Winslow. And he (laughs) greets him as such. Um, And there's, I guess, kind of a confrontation between them, but like, what it really devolves into he he like it's two seconds he like grabs swan for a second and he's like there's like a that's like the picture i think everyone uses when they do like think pieces about this or whatever or if they share pictures it's him pressing swan like basically like into the mirror or something like yeah the mirror yeah because we get like that sort of like play with doubles and identity and such and such and such but yeah but basically swan talks his way out of like any sort of violent altercation with winslow because he um is like well i can still like produce your music um and uh you know your vision can sort of still be brought to life and winslow's like okay like (laughs) having learned nothing from the man who stole his cantata and sent him to prison and so um, he's like, yeah, I'll work for you. And Swan's like, great, but you know, like here are some conditions. And so he sets uh, Winslow up in a special um, recording room studio type space um, and also gives him a voice box to use because Winslow's vocal cords were fucked up fucked up yeah he's like kind of like just sort of glutterly screeching right um up until this point yeah and so he gives him like a voice box you know all very like smoker emphysema type thing yeah so that he can speak um and and sing as well um and this is where he's like okay i want you to like finish your cantata but i also want you to like tweak it because uh the new lead like the person who the people are going to sing it is not the beach bombs it's going to be phoenix who is now signed on to well i don't know if she's signed on to the label but she's, she's like around like she doesn't she's like a chorus person i guess or something um because yeah because winslow's like they can't fucking sing my music like they suck she's the only one i can see if i can't because they i think he tries to sing his music and it you know it just doesn't really work work. yeah um so he's like she's the only one who can do it if i can't do it it has to be her um and swan's like okay um and then we like swerve a little bit into some interesting territory because Swan is like, well, let's make this deal official and let's make it official in blood, Um, which is somewhat odd. But um, Winslow makes the deal and he signs a legitimate contract with his own blood. Um, And we sort of get, you know, like a, um, a very funny cliched uh, working montage yeah. with like clocks and calendars like fading in and out of the screen as Winslow tirelessly is composing music and the, the stacks of um, sheet music get higher and higher all with the idea that Phoenix will sort of bring his magnum opus to life um she starts rehearsing for the role as well at this point um 
And then Swan decides that he doesn't like Phoenix as the lead because she is too perfect. And, you know, he doesn't find perfection to be interesting enough. And so what does he do as a result of that decision? So there's this funny little scene where he's sitting in his circular desk (laughs) and he's like thinking of all his options, I guess. And I don't know if this is happening in real time or it's meant to represent his brainstorming session, but he like spins around his, he's in the middle of a circular desk and he's spinning around like looking at all his options. And he It's goes all through, very Bond villain. Yeah. And he goes through like a folk singer, like a, like a country singer, a pop singer. Mm-hmm. Like he goes through like all the different things until he lands on this dude who is like a glam rock type person named Beef. <laughs> um, and he was like this is it <laughs> this is what I want this is so what I want he decides he's going to go with him and um, makes Phoenix a, just sends her back to the chorus which begs the question like what is this so it's a, is it a rock opera like what why can we just interchange the gender yeah. of the, the person it's never really <laughs> clarified is like it? is Phoenix playing Faust like that's crazy Um, we never know (laughs) so anyway he kind of quietly does that and he doesn't tell um winslow who he goes to see and um winslow is like very burnt out and like swan's feeding him like pills and stuff basically to keep him going and he's like yep phoenix is gonna be great she's really excited you know it's gonna be awesome and then when the phantom like passes out he steals the completed sheet music and has his like goons like brick the wall like the entryway to the recording studio where the, the where Winslow's living like they brick it up um so you know when Winslow wakes up he realizes his cantata's gone he runs the door and it's a brick wall and he just like screams like <laughs> crazy it's I don't I don't know if the implication is that he screams through the wall but when we come back like people hear it like beef hears it and he's like what was that in his like yeah. voice um and we come back and the wall is destroyed and the guards are like killed and Winslow is gone um so um Beef is in his dressing room and he's like, that's weird. What's going on? Like, he's kind of a little bit tweaked at this point because mm-hmm. they've like talked about Winslow and said like he's dead and like this is his cantata. So he's like thinking like the show is maybe a little cursed because it's a dead guy song. Like, and he's feeling a little weird about it. But he gets in the shower um, and there's a sort of great kind of play on the shower scene from Psycho because yeah beef's in there for some reason I guess he doesn't want to get his hair wet because I think he has a hair a shower cap on (laughs) um (laughs) but he's in there and Winslow shows up and he like comes into the shower with a knife and base or no he doesn't have a knife he yeah he does because I guess he cuts a hole in the the curtain and then he sticks a plunger (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like smacks it on um, Beef's face and basically tells him, he's like, don't sing my song. Phoenix is the only one who can do it. Like, absolutely not. And Beef's like, fuck, I'm out. Um, that was crazy. So he tries to leave through a side door. 
like he's like out of gear and Philbin spots him and he's like what the fuck are you doing like get back in there and they have this very funny exchange where um Beef is like I know the difference between drug visions and real life like like he like because he's like are you on speed like what you like calm down like and he wants to give him something to like bring him down basically and he's like no he's like I know the difference yeah um and he insists that he saw like a ghost or he got threatened and you know obviously Philbin knows that this is uh um probably Winslow but you know convinces Beef to go back inside and um you know, do the set and it's going to be fine and just to relax. <laughs> um, so he goes back in and now the artists formerly known as the Juicy Roots and the Beach Bums are now uh, the Undeads. They are like his backup singer who are doing sort of glam rock, like gothic, like picture, like mm. less hardcore Marilyn Manson, like that kind of deal. Right. With like a dash of kiss. Yeah. So they're just there. Um, and then there's obviously, you know, like um all the backups and that sort of thing. And Beef's doing the song, and um, you know, it's going great. People are are loving it. There's, you know, they're they're really going for it. And <sighs> Winslow's up in the rafters, like a creep, like who knows he's he's being creepy like nobody can see him but he feels the need to like run like with his cape like over his face still be a creep yeah um and he decides to take like some of the lighting like he he grabs one of the lighting fixtures i don't know what they're called that looks like a it's like a neon lightning bolt um yeah and he basically just throws it (laughs) um which I guess electrocutes him um and he's yeah and um everyone thinks it's part of the show and they think it's fucking awesome (laughs) and the curtain closed and he's like on fire um (laughs) because Melvin comes out and he's like put that out so they put out the fire get his body off stage and they're like okay we gotta put phoenix in or this is gonna be a, a huge a huge problem um so they do and uh how does that go yeah so um phoenix gets shoved into the limelight you know um which is what winslow wants you know he doesn't want anyone but her to sing it and so she finishes the set i guess of faust even though like she's not she does it completely differently from like the glam rock thing yeah um but the crowd loves it um this crowd that was just like basically like screaming for blood is suddenly like completely pacified by her yeah um and so she's a huge hit uh and then after the show swan is like back on the phoenix train and he's like okay um and he goes to her and he's like i can make you a star and like you'll be my muse and like we'll be together and blah 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 blah. and she's like oh my god that's all i've ever wanted and then he's like, okay, cool. And he dips. And then Winslow sort of just like pops up and is like, ah, blah. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, he sweeps Phoenix up to the roof of the paradise and basically explains everything to her. He's like, listen, remember me? Like, I'm Winslow. I met you 
at your audition and I'm the composer. Like you were singing my music and Swan did this and da da da. And you've got to like leave and like, and not only should you leave, but you should leave with me. And um, Phoenix is like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, and it's like, I don't, and I don't know, like it's not super clear if like she actually doesn't recognize him or if she just like, or if she doesn't believe him or if she doesn't want to believe him or if it's like a mix of all of that. But basically she's just like, no. Um, <laughs> no. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then so she dips um, and goes back to Swan and Winslow follows and he sees them. They don't have sex, but they're like, they're like doing weird they're like making out yeah intimacy like i guess it's foreplay sort of situation and he's like watching them from the skylight and he decides and that- swan is watching him watch them <laughs> yeah, swan is watching winslow watch them because <laughs> he's got a camera up there and he turns on the tv and it shows it's like from behind yeah and so there's all these layers of voyeurism um but it's too much for winslow you know uh to see phoenix with a swan so he busts out his knife again and he stabs himself in the heart but it doesn't kill him uh why is that miss mel um so he just like just lays on the roof for a while waiting <laughs> to die and this does not happen. Like the, the stab does not take. And um, Swan comes up later and basically is like, you fucking idiot. Um, and tells him that, you know, like the contract is like very binding and, you know, it won't end until, you know, basically Swan says it's over, which includes, you know, escape by death. Um, it's actually pretty funny when they do the contract scene, like he pulls up different things where he's like, well, what does it mean by this? And it says like, all non-mentioned items are to be considered mentioned. Yeah. mentioned." In the- yeah. <laughs> and like, there's this one about like, um, like bodily fluids and you know it was it was something like a swan owns all bodily fluids and flesh <laughs> and all this stuff and he's like what's this and they're like oh it's transportation clause <laughs> um that is that is good for it. but anyway he can't he he basically is immortal uh until the terms of the contractor are fulfilled um and he you know, he basically said, you can't die until I die. So the, Winslow's like, all right. So he stabs Swan, <laughs> who, you know, does nothing. And it does not work on him either because he says, I'm under contract too, um, which is fun. Um, so next, uh, what I guess Swan, because the thing is, I guess Swan's like a big, he's a showman. And like, that's like, he wants to just create a show. So he decides that a great show would be him and Phoenix getting married during the finale of Faust at the Paradise. Um, But also that she should get murked right (laughs) after that happens. Right. And it's not clear why. Yeah. It's like, honestly, the only explanation I can find, like, within the text is that he thinks it would make for, like, good, sensational, like, 
right entertainment that she gets sniped literally um literally sniped right after this wedding um so that the preparations for that are going on and the phantom um is you know dicking around he's very sad he's upset um he stumbles upon because remember there are recordings of recordings of people being recorded he stumbles upon a recording that swan made because there's a mention earlier in um the movie some woman runs up to swan and she's like don't you remember me we were high school sweethearts and this other woman's like you're old enough to be his mother and she has a picture of him in his locket looking exactly as he looks now so like he's immortal obviously so um Back in like, I guess this would be like the 50s. Um, there's this video of like, that Swan has made of like that's like basically meant to be a suicide note where he basically is like, you know, he, he like make he like decides to kill himself as art or something. Like, I don't know, there's some weird he doesn't want to get old, he doesn't yeah. want to age. Yeah. There's some weird manifesto, but he decides he's going to um you know, slip his wrists in, in the bathtub and his reflection, who is the, <laughs> who is, I guess the devil, starts right. talking to him and is basically like having a conversation with him and they go back and forth and um, Swan decides to make a pact with the devil that he will never get old and he can fuck around and do what he wants um, unless the videotaped recording of him signing the contract is destroyed. Right. Which, um, okay. Uh, <laughs> so that, you know, okay, now, you know, the fan's like, okay, well, great. And he like sees a sort of flash to, um, you know, himself being talked into signing the contract and in the recordings, like Swan has this really creepy, like devilish voice um, that, you know, it was picked up on audio, but I guess you don't hear it uh, in in person. And then it flashes to um, uh, Phoenix being asked to sign a contract. Yeah. And uh, he tweaks out and he's like, no! So he takes off in another one of his like ridiculous gangly runs um, <laughs> to try and intervene in all this nonsense that's about to go down. And how does that go? <laughs> Well, um, so yeah, so like all of this is going down like on the night of the finale for Faust, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's the big hoorah, you know, Winslow destroys the tapes, which means that uh, Swan is vulnerable, but he's got to save Phoenix because like he knows the plot now. And there's this huge party happening at the Paradise and there's all these dancers and you know, then Phoenix comes out. She's doing like a little jive. Yeah. <laughs> um, Swan comes out and he's got this crazy mask on. And Philbin is the priest. Yeah, he says to Philbin, he's like, I'm going yeah. to get married and you're going to be there. And Philbin's so excited. He's so excited. I've he's, never been a priest before. Yeah, he's very excited. So it's unclear if this would have been like a, a legal a legal marriage. marriage. Yeah. And so the idea, Swan's idea at least, is that at the moment that um, Phoenix makes the part of the vow that it's till death do us part, she will be sniped. Um, literally. And, uh, yeah, and literally. not emphasize enough. Literally <laughs> sniped. 
We are not being facetious. Like there is a guy putting together his sniper, his sniper rifle, yeah, <laughs> in the rafters, um, and that will create the ultimate sort of dramatic show, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the wedding ceremony goes down. Winslow uh, pushes the assassin aside at the last moment, and so, but the bullet is fired and rather than killing phoenix it kills philbin (laughs) (laughs) down he goes um and so then there's 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 chaos and there's confusion and um winslow swings down phantom style onto the stage and um swan's mask is taken off at some point in the chaos and it yeah because he was wearing um he decided to wear a mask during the ceremony because he He's yeah. got this thing about being videotaped and photographed. Right. and such or whatever. So he wears this like silver mask that's like just a replica of his face, but whatever. Yeah. Um, but that gets ripped off. And for some reason, I guess because the tapes have been destroyed, so he's no longer like eternally young. Mm-hmm. His face is like all messed up and decayed and, you know, grotesque. And um, Phoenix is like, what the fuck? And Swan is just like, my vision yeah and he starts to strangle phoenix um and that but then the phantom like attacks him and he's like stabby stab 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 um and then the crowd is like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Sort <laughs> of like with beef they think it's part of the show so they sort of grab swan and they start stabbing him um and because swan is dying slash dead that you know, the contract is fulfilled or broken or whatever. And now Winslow is able to die. Um, Like his wound from earlier is like a real wound now, I guess. Um, And he starts dying from that. Um, He takes his owl mask off and sort of like dies in Phoenix's arms. And there's this moment where like, she either realizes or acknowledges that like she knows that the phantom is Winslow and she remembers who he is. And uh, and that's the end of the film. Yeah. <laughs> wild ride. It's a wild ride. Phantom of the paradise, yo. Woo. So let's do our roll call here real quick, um, which is the segment of the episode where um, we just go through the cast and it's a chance to both um, make any commentary we want on the performance of a given actor and or um, any anything we want to say about the character that they portray. Um, so I'm going to go in the closing credits billing order, uh, which seems to go like almost in reverse of seniority. Um, it starts with Archie Hahn, Jeffrey Culminer, and Harold Ablano as the Juicy Fruits slash the Beach Bums slash the Undeads. I love that opening. Like, I don't know, maybe it's just a thing for like doo-woppy music like that. Like, I love me some Four Seasons. Um, nice. But uh, I enjoyed them. And I think it's funny the way that they kept popping up these different sort of eras of like <laughs> pop music. I enjoyed them too. I do think their best incarnation is as the Juicy Fruits. Um, I think they're, they are fun. And I think they're having a lot of fun in that opening sequence. Yeah. Um, 
there's like the part where like they're off camera or something and the two of them just like run into the audience and start fucking around or whatever yeah no like like, there's a guy they just start getting into a fight yeah the the singer like walks over and is like looking at it and like keeps singing and walks back so it's not clear that it was it was scripted either in their recording or in the actual movies yeah because this just runs out of the audience and grabs somebody and starts like pounding on him and then puts him back and runs away it's very bizarre it's so bizarre um but it's really funny to watch and i think and i think it is the juicy fruits that like signal to us what kind of movie we're about to watch (laughs) so i think that makes them pretty important um but yeah, they're a fun time. Um, then we have uh, George uh, Mamoli as Philbin. Love, he was great. I love that character. I think he's my favorite character. He's a good character. In some ways, I feel like he is an the eyes for the audience. Mm-hmm. Like because I feel like he asks a lot of like clarifying questions. <laughs> like, yeah. wait, so you want to kill Phoenix? Yeah. <laughs> And then he's like, you know, and he's like, so wait, Faust gets the goal at the end? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he just—he's yeah. our—he's our, he's our uh, proxy, and you know, he, within his own sort of like um, universe, he seems like a little bit like he has emotions about the things. Like, I feel like in that first scene when he comes up to Winslow, like he feels a little bit bad about. Um, stealing his music and lying to him yeah i think i think that's a really good point he's also like a really important gateway because like you know in that opening with the juicy fruits like sort of as the performance is dying down and we pull back to like the upper booth Mm -hmm. it's philbin that's in there talking to swan yeah and sort of like giving us our initial exposition about what's going on yeah so i liked him a lot yeah um, fun little note about him. The character is named after the actress Mary Philbin, who played Christine in the original 1925 Phantom of the Opera. Nice. Yeah. Um, next, we have Garrett Orham as Beef. Insane. Insane. Everything he said, he's like, I know the difference between <laughs> high visions and real vision. Like, what I forget what he said. The, this, like, the sass would not have like some of the sass that he gives like could have been like total reads on RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. Like, amazing. This sort of like hyped up David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, yeah. Lamrock, Love Beef. Yeah. Maybe my favorite character. <laughs> um, then uh, Jessica Harper, she gets an introducing in the credits. So introducing Jessica Harper as Phoenix. This was her debut. Um, I would say thumbs up. Yeah, no, I liked her. She was good. She's good, good voice. Um, she beat out both Linda Ronstadt and Sissy Spacek for this role, actually. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, we get into our leads. Paul Williams as Swan, uh, as well as the Phantom singing voice. Great. I mean, he's also like a really renowned um, writer, musician. He's done a ton of music for so many other films. And 
Yeah. And he does a good job in this. He does. He does a very good job. Um, I like, he plays Swan as like um, one of my favorite kind of villains, which is like quiet mm-hmm. and sort of just like, I know I can say and do whatever I want to right now because I'm going to get away with it. You know, yeah. he's like just so assured with his power or whatever, his status. Um, and then William Finley as Winslow Leach slash the Phantom. Uh, he's good. I, I, you know, thinking about him, like he does Win- Winslow very well, like his like nerdy sort of tendencies. And then <laughs> later, I think, you know, anything he would want to do is just swallowed up in the sound and the costume uh, of the Phantom, but. Yeah, I agree. I think it's hard to to really like figure out like his choices as an actor as the phantom yeah. just because it's such a big yeah role. i did like and who knows if this was his, it was probably part of the design because of the way the costume is but because of the way the mask is he has to constantly look at things like he's a pigeon yeah like the cocked like side thing yeah, yeah. and uh, he does that pretty well i do like that yeah and then uh just real quick some other uh folks uh in the cast janice blythe and cheryl smith play groupies and mary margaret amato plays swan's groupie um is that the woman with the locket i believe so yeah yeah and then uh raymond lewis kennedy provides beef's singing voice (laughs) And uh, as Miss Mel mentioned, Rod Serling is the intro voice. What you're about uh, to see. Is what you're about to see is. <laughs> so a couple more uh, um, notes about the film. Um, we mentioned Sissy Spacek had auditioned for the role of Phoenix and lost out to Jessica Harper. But she did end up becoming the set dresser for this film, actually. Um, and she was helped to get that job uh, because her then boyfriend and now husband, Jack Fisk, was the film's production designer. Um, but there is an interview with uh, Sissy Spacek where she said she was really bad at this job as set dresser um, to the point where like she lost or she ruined rather an entire day of filming. Hilarious. Yeah. And she thought like De Palma was going to be so pissed at her and she was totally ruined. But evidently, it wasn't that big of a deal because two years later, she starred in Carrie. <laughs> it's like, um, oh, who was it? Uh, Katie McGrath started as a costume designer on the Tudors. Oh, did she? Or not a designer, but a co- like just a costume person. Um, nice. And then, you know, look at her now. And look at her now. I know. Yeah. Um, we briefly mentioned that the record press uh, from the disfiguring scene um, caused some drama. That was a real molding press, um, not a record molding press, but it was um, a toy press from Pressman Toys um, that they put like a bunch of foam pads on um, and some chocks to make sure that it wouldn't close whenever um, William Finley was inside of it, basically. But as the machine was running, like, you know, it's a big, powerful machine. So it like broke through the chocks and um, kept closing 
like on Finley's head. And so he had to be like pulled out. Um, but as we said, he was fine. And then um, a death label apparently was originally meant to be called Swansong Enterprises. And they had to like scrub all of that because um, Led Zeppelin's label is called Swansong Records. Which you can kind of see in this shoddy, like sort of like covering they do of like different points of the film. You'll notice like this weird out of place, just block of color that mm-hmm. will sit on like, like I noticed you can, you can notice it most during like one of the press conferences. It's on the, um, the podium. Yeah, the podium. The like, the like logo, I guess, for death records is just like a dead bird. <laughs> and that's like very crappily like just placed on top of um like it's like I don't like it's like somebody it's I don't know there's probably a term for this because it's definitely not put into the film itself like it does not like the camera moves and bounces and this block does not does not move <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah a little a little shoddy but yeah that's the reason they were they were gonna get sued (laughs) so uh phantom of the paradise was released on halloween 1974 um and it pulled in about 18 and a half grand over its opening weekend um and would ultimately gross two hundred fifty thousand dollars uh against its 1.5 million dollar budget which is an approximately $750,000 loss. As such, it was a total box office bomb. Um, barely made anything. Uh, the reviews at the time were almost all negative, um, claiming that the film's attempts at parody fell flat because the subjects that it was attempting to parody, like rock and the music industry and horror, and Phantom of the Opera and Faust, et cetera, et cetera, were already absurd concepts and that the film was childish, it was too broad and it was bloated in its style. The thing is, is I can't say they're wrong, but that also doesn't mean it's <laughs> bad. That's exactly right. <laughs> we'll get into that with the legacy of this film. Um, the positive reviews uh, were mostly about the music um, and this, the, this, you know, Paul Williams, et cetera, et cetera. As of now though, the film has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a Metacritic score of 67, an IMDb ranking of 7.4, and a letterbox rating of four out of five. And we'll talk a little bit about why it's so highly rated uh, in our legacy section. But first, maybe let's do some analysis and contextualize the film a bit because yeah. Ms. Mill had some stuff that you alluded yeah. to earlier. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we talked about like the music industry and kind of all that. Um, and, you know, it's like talking about like the, the music scenes and the different music trends as like cultural identity. And that's something I feel like they do throughout the film where they like they keep turning the Juicy Fruits or whatever their real name is, whatever their (laughs) their birth name was, um, into different things um, that can just sort of be um, 
you know, and then it becomes sort of mass produced and, you know, anything can be anything and anything can be sort of fitted into a mold, um, you know, and it's making comments about, you know, that sort of thing and that within the music industry, but also just like capitalism at large and what it does to creative endeavors. And I think it's an interesting use of the phantom um, as a sort of, because like in the original, you know, he was like a recluse because he, well, in the original, original, he was just recluse because he was like ugly. Like he was just described as ugly. Right. Um, in subsequent adaptations, they gave him like a deformity and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, in this, it's interesting because Winslow is just kind of like a guy for the wrong time or a guy for the wrong culture like I don't know like he just you know he's he's writing 200 page cantatas and and you know very quiet meek dude and you know he's kind of getting into this sort of cutthroat industry yeah um and you know Phoenix becomes an extension of himself because he basically loses you know whereas the Phantom I feel like has a sort of identity um and, you know, his, you know, his identity is being a creep and like murdering people, but, you know, he's got his own thing going on. Whereas Winslow as the Phantom is like, you know, he's lost his voice. Um, he, you know, his music's been stolen from him. So the only connection he has to like an identity is Phoenix, like mm -hmm. being a proxy for him essentially out right. in the world, um, which is all very interesting. And, you know, I think it, it you know, it's why a lot of this like endures so much is because you can kind of take this story and put it in any time frame um, yeah and and make it work yeah that's the thing I mean like this this story like could work set you know in 2022 mm -hmm. like obviously it would be ridiculous in the sense that it's ridiculous as it exists but like because the music industry hasn't changed all that much since the 70s it totally works yeah yeah um and as i said i did my double feature of this in the apple and yeah. um the apple just to briefly talk about it is a um a 1980 like rock musical dystopian story that I saw oh, one it's person dystopian. yeah it's a little dystopian I saw somebody on reddit suggest that it could be read as a sequel to this if you just sort of like insert phoenix as the female character awesome um and then sort of the the bad guy the evil bad guy in in the apple is like a reincarnation essentially or an iteration of of swan um but basically that is a dystopian world where like this music, I forget what it's called, but there's a big music company that like controls everything. Like they run all the entertainment and they run the everything. And somehow they also run the police and the government and stuff like that's the idea. And they have like these showcases and Alfie and a woman whose name I forget, BB, something like that. Um, perform and they're and the allegory is Adam and Eve that's why it's called the apple so they perform and they perform this ridiculous hippie like trash like you know very early fleet we're all one music yeah. beads and flowers basically and they get like 
you know, the guy doesn't like it, but he likes her. So he sweeps her, you know, the evil guy sweeps her away. She gives into the temptation of the apple, which is the mm. record deal. Um, and, you know, we have to fight to get her back and stuff. Um, but it's saying, I think, the, generally the same thing that this film is saying, which is very, you know, a very different um, sort of thesis than the original Phantom of the Opera is saying, if that's saying anything at all, where, you know, these both kind of like are looking at like late 20th century America um, and, you know, basically just trashing it. Um, right. You know, using music as the way to do that because it's such like an easy um analog i guess for for like everything going on and if you think about it that like that makes sense because like you know look at you know like we define a lot of gener or like decades by the music that was in them like you think of yeah. the 60s as hippies and like peace and love and that kind of music and you think of the 70s as disco and the 80s as synths and rock and yep. 90s as grunge and hip-hop and early 2000s as like boy bands and um like pop rock yep so it becomes an easy way to basically talk about like the culture at large um which i find interesting yeah and to marry it with sort of like one of the other major cultural staples that like we ascribe to and think about decades, which is film, mm -hmm. you know, um, that, that's, that's really interesting to think about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's a fun little, you know, I feel like so many, um, considering how many takes of the opera are either just so bland, or carbon copies, like I'm happy to have one that's like just really loud and mm -hmm. ridiculous. And at least it's, you know, making its its mark. Yeah. And pulling and referencing a lot of other stuff too, right? Like obviously Faust is a big mm -hmm. part of the story that goes on here. Um that yeah. we mentioned um when beef is, you know confronted by Winslow in the shower. That's a nod to Psycho. Um, the makeup for the undeads is reminiscent of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm -hmm. And um, there's references to um, the cask of Amontillado when- Yeah, when they break him up inside his fucking- Yeah. And so it's just pulling and it's doing like fun other things as much as it's doing Phantom of the Opera. It's, it's even kind of Frankenstein-ish. Yeah. Yeah, and the Faust element is interesting to me because that starts to come up, like, I feel in sort of later adaptations of Phantom, because um, in the original book, if I remember the, like, the Faust opera is a central thing that's going on um, right. in the book, like, they're performing Faust and Eric keeps trying to get Christine in the show and they keep fucking it up um naturally and he gets pissed um and it's that that they're doing instead of like don juan because don juan right. in the book is actually like not really a big part of it at all um which is interesting because then people took that i think and like kind of extrapolated on the phantom's mythology 
because like the Robert Englund version has him like making a deal with the devil and that's how he gets disfigured and a couple other films kind of take that same approach. Um, so it's interesting. It is interesting, yeah. So, you know, our next segment is One Good Scare where we each sort of offer up like what's the most frightening moment uh, in the movie for us. This is obviously a heavily comedic uh, kind of horror film, um, but did you have anything in this movie that you were sort of like, oh God. I thought it was really creepy when you would hear the recording of um, Swan's voice and it was different than mm. how it was in life you know because he has a very soft he talks very soft and slow and then you hear him say the same thing in the recording and it was like this guttural sort of like devilly like reptilian voice saying the same yeah. words that like gets picked up I guess like on camera but not right being, and like that, that crap like that always freaks me out yeah like playing with the idea of like you know voices can be picked up you know on mm -hmm. camera or like glowing orbs can be picked up on film yeah or that like you could just be hearing somebody say something and then hear it played back and there's like 15 right. other voices you didn't there hear. yeah 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 i definitely agree that that's that's probably the freakiest moment of the movie um and then i guess one of the whole big themes the idea of being like a creative person um and being like exploited by the system kind of thing, mm -hmm. like that your work could be taken from you, that it could be no longer yours, that, you know, um, that the music industry, you know, that most entertainment industries are like a business kind of thing is, mm -hmm. you know, an icky thought to engage with. Um, so, yeah. So now we'll, go into our view from the closet segment. And this is where we take a moment to think about if we can view this film from an LGBTQ plus lens. And I think there's a fair amount here. Yeah, I think it's pretty easy. I think it's pretty easy. I mean, the hyper stylized glam rock scene obviously carries a lot of... Um... Code, coding with it. Yes coding beef is a very flamboyant figure um he's evoking a lot of real life glam rock flamboyant figures um you know he's in the shower and he gets the very phallic plunger shoved yeah. in his mouth you know i think there's something there i think all of the women mm -hmm. in the bed together yeah, obviously i think they even say at one point too like he likes to he's got cameras everywhere because he likes to watch us he likes he's to like watch. watch us what and they're like with each other <laughs> with each other yeah and then like yeah like the the newer girls are kind of like oh okay yeah <laughs> so there's, like, there's like a fluidity suggestion there mm -hmm. even um yeah and i think even winslow himself like is coded or like I think can be read as a little bit like fey or swishy mm -hmm. like I don't even know that like he his attraction to Phoenix is romantic or sexual yeah. I think it's just that he's attracted to her talent and the fact that she can bring his work to life yeah you know yeah because the only time there's ever really a hint that it's like 
romantic would be when he flips out when he sees her with Swan, but that even can be read as just like her, you know, he told her to stay away from Swan and get away from right. him and, you know, leave. And, you know, she's doing the opposite of that and just getting exactly. further in. Um, so I could see right. that. Yeah. So now we'll move into legacy, legacy. What is a legacy? And that's the impact of the film um, since its release. Um, Phantom of the Paradise was nominated for an Academy Award, actually. Um, it was up for, um, well, at the time, um, the best score was um, two awards. It was best original score and basically best adapted score. And Phantom of the Paradise was up for best adapted score, um, but it lost out to uh, The Great Gatsby. It was also nominated for the Golden Globe for the equivalent award, but it lost to The Little Prince. Um, as much as the film bombed uh, at the box office everywhere, um, the States and elsewhere, it ended up being a massive hit in Winnipeg, Manitoba. They don't have their board. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it didn't open there when it opened in the States, which was on Halloween. It opened on Boxing Day, December 26th of 1974. And it played in theaters in Winnipeg on and off for two years. <laughs> like, it's so weird. Into 1976, yeah. Um, and then it screened uh, in Winnipeg again, periodically throughout the 1990s and culminated in this like huge celebratory um, IMAX screening of the film in 2000. So it's like a big deal in there. Winnipeg. <laughs> in Winnipeg. So much so that in 2005, a bunch of Winnipeg citizens who were fans of the film organized Phantom Palooza which was a big like street and music festival to celebrate the film. Um, William Finley, uh, who played uh, Winslow and Garrett Graham, who played Beef, attended in fact, as guests of honor. And then it was so successful. So they held it again the next year in 2006 and got even more cast members to come back, including Paul Williams, who then performed a concert for everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was probably a pretty good time. Thriving in Winnipeg. You know? Uh, additionally, over the years, uh, the film has found its way into other aspects of pop culture. The French musician Sebastian Teller um, wrote the song Divine as a tribute to uh, both the Beach Boys and the Juicy Fruits. <laughs> Uh, the electrocution scene in Romeo's Distress is an homage to Beef's death. In this I do movie. like the way that they did that scene in the film with the sort of stop motion. I, I did too. I yeah. thought that worked really well, actually. Yeah. It's a good scene. Um, a concert production of the film was held on March 12, 2018 at the Secret Loft in New York City. And uh, that same year, Daft Punk actually revealed in an interview with The Guardian that when they first met at each other, um, they were 12 and 13, they were constantly going to the movies all of the time. And the one movie that um, they saw the most 
uh, over 20 times by their recollection was Phantom of the Paradise. Can't imagine watching this 20 times. Right? Uh, but I think it's interesting because I kind of see the film's influence with yeah. that. Very much so. I mean, their aesthetic is not that far off from the Winslow's Phantom. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, and then the film was uh, released on, it was never released on VHS, um, but it was, it was, you know, too much of a flop for that, but it was released on DVD on September 4th, 2001 through 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment. And then it was released on Blu-ray on August 4th, 2014 through Shout Factory. If you have the Blu-ray, um, there are some special features on there, including an audio commentary, some interviews with the cast and crew, the original trailers for the film, as well as the original TV and radio spots, a few alternate scenes, and the original swan song footage. I'm not sure what that means. Is it the swan song logo? Maybe. Yeah. Somebody has the Blu-ray, let us know. Yeah, I'm, it might be, you know, the app before they like put in the death label stuff. But yeah, if you've got the Blu-ray, let us know. And so, yeah, and um, all that to say, basically, the film has become a massive cult classic. There's been a lot of appreciation for it in the years since its release. It's pretty well regarded now. Um, I think you had mentioned that um, there are a fair amount of think pieces out there about mm -hmm. this movie. Um, so, yeah, it's a, uh, people like this one. Yeah. So are we ready for our closing question? I think so. All right. Um, well, you're up. What do you got yes. for? Us? So my question to you is if you could pick, and don't think about this in terms of merit or in terms of like, you know, the correct casting, but if you could pick any um like current you know, in the past 20 years or so, maybe, or yeah, well, current in the past 50 years, um, musician to like play the role of like the Phantom, Ooh. <laughs> who would it be? Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a lot. I can tell you mine. Mine is definitely one where this isn't a choice of like, I think this person would do really great in this role. I think they would, but not for like any <laughs> you just want to see award-winning reasons. But I think Steven Tyler would be pretty oh awesome. Oh my god! <laughs> yes. Oh, that's such a good answer. Yeah. He'd be so crazy. He'd be insane. I mean, okay, literally, like watching this movie, especially this time, I was just like, everybody involved here was on so many drugs. Yeah. <laughs> either creating it or getting through it or <laughs> yeah 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 um oh my gosh that's such a good answer steven tyler okay i think it would be a, a good time if lady gaga did i knew like you were gonna say <laughs> did like a gender fuck kind of yeah. leech <laughs> That would be, oh my God. She would be very earnest about it too. Yeah, yeah. She's that kind I mean, of actor. Maybe now's the time. She's probably like simmering from her House of Gucci snub. <laughs> <laughs> she's got something else lined up, doesn't she? She's like, in, she's got something. She's, she's got something else. But I feel like this is the prime opportunity to be like, Gaga, 
what about a Phantom of the Paradise remake? And she's she'd like, be like ah. <laughs> she just screamed like Winslow. <laughs> Flies from the room, like, like when, in doing one of his sort of like runs. Yeah. So that's who I'm going with. Yeah, I thought you might say that because I also was thinking, I was like, well, that would be good, but Steven Tyler would be. I know, but hey, let's maybe Steven Tyler could be Swan. Mm-hmm. And oh, that could, would be good. They could be yeah. in it together. That would be fun. <laughs> so, all right. Well, if you have dream casting for a Phantom of the Paradise remake, please let us know. And um, there's lots of ways you can do that. Miss Mel, how can we? noises <laughs> my my office is full of traps um they can do that by emailing us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com you can tweet us one of the best ways to get in touch with us tweet or dm us uh on twitter uh at splatterchatter 666 minus all the vowels in the handle but you know searches will pop right up um, we got a Tumblr, splatterchatter.tumblr.com. Uh, we got an Instagram, splatterchatter666. And then we've got a comment section in the blog, uh, yeah. which is splatter-chatter.com. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, feel free to reach out to us on any or all of those platforms. If you do so choose, we'd love to hear from you, as well as uh, maybe get a rating or a review on um, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or Stitcher. Uh, which is all the places you can find our show right now. This is going to close out our Valentine's Day episode on Phantom of the Paradise. If you're looking for other love-themed episodes, you can check out episode 18, uh, where we cover My Bloody Valentine, both the original and the remake, I believe. We did both, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, You can also listen to episode 36, uh, where we take a look at all things Phantom of the Opera, Um, in light of its 30th um, anniversary on Broadway. Uh, And you can also listen to episode 44 on Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is set on Valentine's Day. Yeah, St. Valentine. St. Valentine's Day. Uh, And for right now, we are gonna close out episode 95. Be on the lookout for episode 96 in March. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh my goodness. Yeah. And until that time, we want to remind you to keep up the creep. And for now, we're going to say au revoir, adios, and das Wiedersehen.